Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. to be helpful. It's just the ways some people show that they care, show help, might not feel that helpful in that particular phase, you know, emotional phase of life, physical phase of life, sleep-deprived phase of life. Welcome to Motherbirth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories, meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Welcome today. I am this is Melissa. I'm here with a special guest and Laura isn't with us today due to some school scheduling conflicts which is a big part of her world right now as she is wrapping up this year of her doctorate in nurse midwifery, which we're obviously so excited about. Um, Our guest today is someone we've been trying to have on the show for several months, actually. We initially recorded with her a few months ago while I was in Mexico, and unfortunately, the audio just didn't work out. And so we've been continually coming back to trying to have this conversation, which we know is going to be such an important one, and and we're so excited to have her here. So Ariana, is that how you say your name? It is. Okay. Would you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll dive into your story. Sure. So I'm like you just introduced. I'm Ariana Tapawada. Um, I have a two-year-old son um, and uh, maternal health is uh a big part of my world, both professionally and personally, obviously. Um, I'm a maternal health professional by training um, and have worked in the field since 2002, um, both in clinical settings, mental health settings, and private practice, um, advocacy, and research. Um, And then obviously my my lived experience as a mom. So um, I'm excited to to really have that blend um, as we go into our conversation, our, our, our third of our third conversation and (laughs) excited to, to, you know, all the, all the conversations we've had have been good. Um, everything from our emails back and forth to our first call to our re our re attempt. (laughs) Um, so I think this is the perfect podcast to really have that blend of the, the science, the evidence, the professional with the personal experience, the everyday, um, things that we, that we live. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of why we've been so excited to have you on the show is that you bring this really interesting blend. You have this maternal health research background, you have this social work background, and you also have your personal story and personal journey as a mother, which has some really unique components. And I think that when we, you know, when, when you share your story, it's it's really obvious how much you've prioritized how to kind of optimize that journey and and that's a big part of the work that you do um why don't we kind of we'll we'll get into what you do now and and what your focus in maternal health is but i want to back up to where your journey started as a mother and how that began sure 
So should we start, should I start with the personal then or start with the? Yes. Yeah. Let's start with the personal. Sure. So I uh, currently live in the California Bay area. um, But at the time where I was starting my family, uh, my husband and I were living in uh, Southeast Mexico, the state of Quintana Roo, um, about 40 minutes South of Cancun. Um, And I, because I worked in, in maternal health, um, I had uh, a network of of colleagues, a lot of whom were midwives. Um, and so when I uh, found out I was pregnant, actually the next week I had a a meeting, a work meeting with um, Sabrina, who would become my midwife. Um, and she at the time was on the regulatory board for the Mexican Midwifery Association. Uh, and so once we finished business, I turned to her and was like, I, I think I'm going to need your professional services mm-hmm. on a personal level as well. Um, and so I, uh, because in uh, Mexico, midwives have been pushed out of the public health system and institutions, birthing mm-hmm. institutions in general, um, if you want a midwifery model of care, you have a home birth, essentially. So right. um, I don't think before I would have described myself as someone who is like, you know, your quote unquote, stereotypical home birth um, mama, but I knew I wanted the midwifery model of care yeah. um, for you know, reasons we can go into. But the punchline is that 86% of, of uh, facility births in the area where I lived resulted in a C-section. So right. there's a pretty high likelihood if you go to a hospital, have a baby in a hospital, you are um, having a baby through a cesarean. Um, yeah, which is an outrageous, outrageous number. And if you think about, you know, women going into a setting like that who may even be educated and have, you know, certain birth preferences that are on their radar, there's just so much that's going on in a system like that that is going to kind of override that autonomy. Yeah. And it's, it's super interesting because it's in the private sector and in the public sector for very different reasons, um, kind of mm. private sector reimbursement reasons, preferred, uh, you know, preferred way of operating for the for the provider um, in public institutions it's um, because of a lot of overcrowding and literally not being able to to wait <laughs> um, yeah. for labor to progress as 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 long as it does mm-hmm. um, so I knew early on that I was having a home birth um, and had uh, Sabrina, the midwife, would would become, and her two assistants would become my providers. Um, they serve a pretty big uh, part of of um, the area where I lived, and so they would be driving sometimes like two or three hours to attend mm-hmm. births, and you know, urban settings, rural settings. Um, we lived in a city. Um, I had, they were my providers through my prenatal care and through the birth, um, which happened at, you know, up in my bedroom. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was now that I have my son and I'm back in the U S and, you know, I'm I'm hoping to to have another baby in the next few years. I really couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how those experiences, I mean, you, when, when you said you weren't, you didn't envision yourself as being the kind of person that would choose a home birth. And yet in this particular setting and location that you were in to have the midwifery model of care, that was really the only option. 
when you realized that, did you feel nervous about the home birth aspect of it particularly, or did you feel so confident in Sabrina and and the care that you knew she could provide that it was just kind of a non-issue? I I think a little bit of both. I mean, I was really confident. It was someone, I, I really didn't go out like interviewing midwives. I didn't have to find a provider who I would eventually come to build a relationship with. And so I had, because I had an established relationship and I, I mean, I knew what her, what the data in her practice was like. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really confident going into it that that, um, that she was the right provider for me. Um, and and then I, um, I ended up taking a childbirth uh, prep class with my husband with someone um, uh, who typically she was a doula that childbirth ed classes typically in um, in hospital settings. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to try and figure out what I could take with me um, from into that other setting. Yeah, yeah. Um, because so much of the childbirth prep material was really about advocating for yourself um Mm -hmm. and and trying to figure out um the kind of the birthing restrictions or workarounds or preferences and that whole framing within a system that that we know in that context is not supportive of low intervention births Mm -hmm. um so and I really had a provider who was the polar opposite, who was like hands off unless asked or directed otherwise, or unless there was something out of, out of the range of normal. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, so it ended up being like a, a kind of an exploration. And one of the things that, you know, I, as you, as most people who listen to the show uh, do, or, you know, as, as you can probably tell from my background, I, I rely a lot on information and, um, and data and the science. Um, and at one point, my midwife was just like, you have to stop reading, you have to stop looking for more, you have to lean into the other part, like away from the brain and into your intuition. And that's what, like, that is the only missing thing left there is for yeah. you to do here. Um, because I was really trying to just soak up more and more and more and prepare more and more and more. And I think she was, she was just like, I think you have to do the opposite now. (laughs) Um, And that was, that was what I needed um, to, 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 to not do, to stop trying to um, let go and lean in a little bit more to the experience as opposed to the information. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something we talk about all the time on the podcast, you know, in the, in the coaching groups that I do and in my online course now for women who've experienced loss, really talking about how information only serves us up to a certain point. And I think especially when we're talking, I mean, there, there are plenty of realms in which information is, is the be all end all. And it just isn't in this when we're talking about something that is so, personal, so individualized, so intimate, and so intuitive, so kind of internal, there's just a real, there's a real gap between what information, like how it can benefit us and where it's, it's, or rather there's a, you know, there's this line where it crosses over into actually harming us, where it starts to disable our intuition. It starts to disable our confidence in ourselves and our ability to actually just trust that 
it will unfold how it's meant to unfold and that we will, we will have the tools we need in that moment, even if it's unexpected or, you know, undesirable. Um, I think it's, it's wonderful to have a midwife who can articulate that to you. And in a way that impacted you in a way that made you realize, okay, that, that is what I need to hear. And I can, I can work with that. Was it hard for you throughout the rest of your prenatal experience to maintain that kind of a relationship to information? Um, you know, I was one of those like very tired throughout the whole pregnancy people. Um, and so that was probably a, a, a factor in that, in it, like it made me, if I'd had the energy, maybe I would have dedicated that energy to to still trying to find more, but I was towards, especially like, I was pretty sick the first 20 weeks. And then after that, I was just getting larger and tired and it was extremely hot where I live, (laughs) um, hot and humid. And so I was just in like totally embracing the hands off, chill, do as little as possible, nap as much as possible, (laughs) um, mode. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I was just nodding my head, the whole, the, the series of points you were just touching on and, and what comes to mind for me was also that we we feel this need to like seek information and learn as much as possible when we reach that stage of life because because um, the sphere of like birthing and mothering, even though it's universal, happens so much in privacy and yeah. we're not Especially exposed now. to it. Yeah, yeah, we're not we're not surrounded by a culture of like, you just are around pregnant and birthing women and postpartum women all the time. So you soak it up in a more intuitive, experiential way. It it becomes something like, Oh my gosh, this is happening to me now. And I better Mm -hmm. learn as much as possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just had a conversation a few weeks ago with a friend who is pregnant and, you know, was, um, you know, had to do some fertility treatments to get to that point. And was experiencing spotting early on and, and just feeling so overwhelmed by that. And, and I was, I was really overcome by this sense of, you know, any, any woman ever in the entire history of humanity that experiences spotting early in their pregnancy is also going to go, oh my gosh, what's happening? Is this, you know, is this horrible news? Like, what does this mean? But in the context of, you know, our, our more traditional societies around the world, they would have immediately had a mother and three sisters and three aunts and their best friend to turn to and say, is this normal? You know, what, like, what do I do? Do, do I, do I need to rest? Is something wrong? And, and not that there would, not that that necessarily means there would even be answers, but there's just this level of support that doesn't necessitate needing to have figured everything out before you even get to that experience. And I think that nowadays we, we want to not only have the information, but we want to be, like you said, so prepared so that no matter what comes up, we already know, like if I start spotting, I already know the eight things that this could possibly mean and whether I should, you know, rest or drink water or et cetera, because we don't have these, these supportive frameworks that allow us to, to lean into the people around us when those things happen. And so it it creates just panic and anxiety, you know? Yeah, I (laughs) totally resonates. And the kind of the, the inherent uncertainty that, that really for me characterizes what the whole transition into parenthood is like is, um, Mm -hmm. 
it feels so foreign and scary in like a, a type A know everything kind of world. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so foreign and scary, this thing that almost every human on the planet experiences, you know, whether we have one children or multiple children, whether we start in our early twenties or later in life, you know, most of us experience this, this journey of motherhood, of parenthood. So it's crazy that it's this unfamiliar and this foreign. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So I'd love to hear what your birth experience was like in, in, so you had Sabrina come to your home and how did everything go from there? Yeah. So I, um, actually started off, uh, I went into labor, uh, around 3am and so started off just the first few hours by myself in my, in my bathroom. Um, husband was obviously still sleeping. Um, eventually I did wake him up so we could walk around a little, but, um, you know, I was first time laboring mother. So I was kind of thinking what everyone else had told me up until now, which was this could take a really long time. (laughs) Um, so that is kind of the frame of mind I had. And, um, so from 3am until about 9am, um, we were just walking around and trying to stay comfortable and probably what what sticks out most in my mind and what was really prominent during the first few hours of early labor was that I would get a leg cramp every time I had a contraction, which was so more, it was so much more oh painful and annoying than the actual <laughs> labor sensation. Um, so I was walking, I was like, was like one of those, you know, dogs almost that walks around kind of shaking its leg. Um, and that's what I, that was like my coping mechanism. I had read, uh, you know, Ina Mae Gaskin's book. And so every so often I'd be like, can you just like shake my legs? <laughs> um, and the, we, so we called Sabrina and her team, um, around, uh, 7am to, to let them know that like things seemed to be picking up. And, and because I was the first time mom, they were like, really? Like, is you want us to come now? Or you want us to check in with you in a few hours? And um, my husband was like, I was pretty much in my, in my zone. And so he was like, just come now. And so they did, they um, arrived. And um, I mentioned that, you know, the, the, really the, framework and the approach that my team had was um, a pretty hands-off, you know, no low to no intervention approach. And um, so really the checks that Sabrina would do is that she would um, she would use a Dobbler to check fetal heart, uh, heart rate. And she would lift the, I was wearing like a little black sundress and she would lift the back of my dress up and just with her eyes, see the changes. There's, um, you know, I'm going to probably jumble things up now, but there's a particular technique that she was trained in, um, where you can kind of look for the bluish line, essentially like look at your butt crack. (laughs) Um, And that was really how she determined how things were going. Um, I didn't have a, yeah, that line is supposed to correspond to cervical dilation. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are certain providers that will use that as a gauge for how how far you've progressed. Yeah, and so her assistants had a little paper and pencil uh, chart, um, part partogram, um, 
And I really was either, I remember the Doppler being used, but other than that, I don't remember um, just being aware of how they were tracking or recording things. Um, Mm. And so I was like full force leaning into the like less information is more at this point. Um, And, you know, my water didn't break early on. I didn't have a bloody show early on. um, And I was just like trying to go with whatever was happening and, and trying to, uh, deal with that leg cramp. Um, Mm. so, you know, I use kind of the range of things available. We, um, they had a a stool that I would sit on. I spent some time in the bathroom. So spent a lot of time standing, um, and then, um, tried squatting and was like totally knew right away that that was not, that was not a great option for me. Had like a birthing ball. Um, and yeah, it was just trying to keep moving. Um, and I remember by around two o'clock, I was asking her like, like, should I try pushing? And she just looked at me and was like, if you feel like it. Um, And apparently I felt like it, which is, you know, I don't think I would have asked the question if I didn't. Um, And, and pretty soon after that um, was kind of actively, um, you know, trying to, trying to get my little guy out. Mm. (laughs) He was born at uh, 2.50 in the afternoon. And so my entire labor lasted not quite 12 hours yeah Yeah. it's a that's a pretty great first labor (laughs) yes that's uh, that's what I've been told I remember at one point um I I really wanted this is gonna sound so gross but I wanted a pork sandwich (laughs) and so (laughs) that's like I remember eating that and drinking a lot of water uh and um and things moving you know, so simultaneously, so slowly and so quickly. (laughs) Absolutely. Did you find or in it later have any conversations with your midwife about the accuracy of, of the, her checks of the line and, and whether that did correspond with your dilation? Mm -hmm. So, um, we have following, she has always like a debrief, the birth session um, in one of the postpartum visits. Um, although it was definitely much more focused on kind of my experience mm-hmm. of the birth rather than anything that they right. were tracking. Um, so that's a great question. One I haven't thought about um, much before. I never asked to kind of look at the, the partogram or anything like that. And um yeah, it's not something I've thought about until right now. No, I'm. I only ask out of curiosity because it's it's something that I'm familiar with, but I don't know if I've ever actually heard a, a story from someone whose midwife used that as their primary technique. And so it's just interesting to you know to have to hear you talk about it, and then also to have you relay this story where you know the process was very intuitive you know you didn't have internal checks you get to the point where where you push and you push effectively and you know really the the timing of everything was was so um you know progressive so it's just in, i'm just curious as to you know how how if you did process that afterwards um 
So we, I, now thinking about it, in the, um, during prenatal visits, they do, I felt like I received quite a bit of education through the prenatal visits on like what the, what the birth experience would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does have, um, both in her personal practice and also how she trains um, midwives that study under her, a essentially a no um, internal vaginal exams unless requested. requested. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was I felt like I knew that's how it would things would go leading mm-hmm. up to the birth. Um so it it what that ended up being like is feeling like is that the birth experience lined up with what I had learned about her approach would be like during the prenatal um time. Yeah, that coming back to, you know, the conversation we're having about information, it's always really interesting and I've experienced this in my own births just that tension between, you know, knowing, like you said, that less information is more. And we know that in normal physiologic birth, that, that the lowest amount of intervention possible is, is the, is going to be the best, um, the best situation for, for mama and baby and for birth. And yet there's so many times where when we get to a point where they're just like, I just want to know, like, if I'm a four, I can't do this anymore. But if I'm a 10, like, (laughs) you know, or if I'm an eight, then this is, you know, then, then I'm going to feel positive about, you know, how far I've come. And I know that that was definitely a challenge for me in a couple of my births as well, you know, wanting that really low intervention, but also having these moments of just being like, just tell me, just tell me if I'm there yet, you know? Um, I, I mean, there was a point, um, my, my water still had not broken. Uh, and I was feeling, I, and I was feeling an urge to push. This is right before I, um, asked her if I should be pushing now, but I, I had that, you know, essentially in one hindsight, I was transitioning, but I looked at her and I was like, I, I feel like I need some guidance is what I said. And, um, and I was kind of, you know, saying like, how far the it was you know code for tell me what to do or like am I doing this right um and she just looked at me and said you're going to meet your baby soon (laughs) that was that was about as much guidance (laughs) um as she provided but that what she was allowing to happen there was um was was again she knew me really well professionally and she was offering something that would um that would not get me going into my normal, like I need information analytical um, pattern. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's Um, giving you something that's going to motivate you and encourage you without giving you like something to obsess over or fixate on. Um, and, and, and then creating that spiral of like, okay, well then how long will it be? When will I meet the baby? You know? Mm-hmm. And it worked for me. Like, yeah. I don't know if it was, you know, obviously she has lots of years of experience and I don't know if she knew me well enough or if she, you know, uses that line on all moms or whatever, right. but, um, but it like, that was, that was enough. That was all I needed. And I, that was what like got me back into the zone and said, okay, I think I feel like pushing. I, I'm going to push now. <laughs> That's so great. So great to be, to be that connected to your intuition, but to have that, that guidance and that, you know, those sort of gentle bumpers, someone that's like, Hey, here's, you know, like you're doing this, this is you, you are, you are the one in the driver's seat here, but I'll just kind of like, you can bump up against me, you know? 
It's really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really beautiful. So I would love to, I know one of the things that is so important to you in, in the research you do and the work that you do and, and now in your own experience, um, I know that what postpartum transitions look like are so, so critical and were a really big part of both how you prepared for your birth and your experience after birth. And then now also the work that you do with women. So let's start with kind of what your thoughts during your pregnancy, you know, knowing everything that you already knew leading up to that point and the work that you were already doing, but then sort of being in this experience for the first time yourself and preparing for your own postpartum transition. How did you approach that? Yeah. So, um, uh, you nodded to it, but I'll give a little more context in that my private practice, um, as a maternal health professional and social worker, um, from starting in 2010 was really about postpartum Mm -hmm. (laughs) prep and care. Um, and so essentially I made myself a client. I put myself in the, in the seat of, of the women who I typically served and began using the tools that I used with, with women in my private practice. And I'm going through the exercises myself. So there's, I mean, one in particular that I really love is, um, called the postpartum eco map and it's a visual map that you use to map out your support networks um, and kind of the strength or fragility of the relationships of key people mm-hmm. in your lives both family friends um, social networks as well as professionals um, so in in a postpartum eco map you can do it you know there's versions you can use for different stages of life but in postpartum the professionals are typically um, you know, related to the maternity care postpartum space um, and so at the end of of working on a map like that you have a really clear visualization of where the strengths of your support network lie and where there's clear gaps um, yeah. so that's what tool? I used. Is this a tool that you've developed or is this something that is used in the field by, by different professionals? Yeah, so EcoMaps are um, common tools in the field of social work overall. A postpartum EcoMap is um, something I specifically developed to help with my work. Um, I'm totally happy to share it. I have a DIY version. Okay. Um, that we can we can link to for sure and it's um it's it's kind of fun (laughs) if you like if you like drawing if you like thinking about um and mapping out and visualizing um your your resources it is a fun process to go through and can bring a lot of um clarity around both your your needs and your wants and how those are going to get met um so from there i you know you're able to I was able to um, make really clear, specific asks of the people in my life um, and hire for um, the people who I didn't have in my life, but where I know I needed um, help or had roles that I wanted to be filled. And that was true both for my work life um, because I am self-employed. Um, and so I needed to to make sure that things continued um, to kind of function without me. Um, so I had some business-related um, postpartum prep work, maternity leave prep, um, as well as my um, my personal desires and needs. Um, and because, I mean, 
because I had worked with a lot of postpartum women in, in not ideal postpartum situations, essentially moments of crisis. I definitely was one of those like overprepared. Like I remember giving my husband like a printout. <laughs> these are the symptoms of postpartum psychosis. If I happen to show any of these symptoms, <laughs> this is what I need you to do. Um, so, <laughs> so I was like prepared for the worst case scenario, um, I suppose. But um but ended up because of the, I mean, I should say postpartum is hard no matter how much you prepare, right? Yes. Um, but I also had a really fantastic care team. Um, and, you know, when I talk about the postpartum care that I had from Sabrina, my midwife and her team, um, I, I usually get a lot of like, oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. Essentially, they, you know, it was a next day visit, a three day visit, a two week visit, a one month visit and a six week yeah. visit um, is their standard. And then they're available and able to come as, as much as you need if things arise in between those yeah. visits. Um, I had some, some tearing and suturing that wouldn't quite hold. And so they, I had some more frequent visits in those yeah. first six weeks. Um, and, um, and a lot of women just that I talked to can't even imagine having that much care. Um, but I, I always like to say, I know we've said it on an original conversation we had, um, but if you look at that standard of care of kind of, you know, four to six regular visits in the first six weeks postpartum, and you look at the World Health Organization's recommend, recommended standards of care postpartum, it it maps on pretty well. So it's, it's not like I just got like a right. um, luxury version of postpartum care. That's more than anywhere else in the world. It's like, no, we actually have the science and the evidence to, to say that if you deliver <laughs> um, that basic standard of routine postpartum care, that there are so many things, both on the medical, physical side, but also the mental health and emotional well-being. An emotional side. And that's the part that's really hard to prepare for. And and even when you have incredible support and even when you have awareness and, you know, support structures around identifying, you know, perinatal mood disorders and that sort of thing, it's it's just really, really tricky to navigate what that piece actually looks like. And I think that, you know, when we when we culturally are so used to kind of emotional isolation and, you know, retreating or withdrawing when we're, when we're in a difficult place, which is, which is, you know, default mode for most people, it really, it's really hard to translate that to, okay, I'm, I'm postpartum and there's so much going on and, and I'm going to, I'm going to reach out and get what I need. It's really, really difficult to do that. I mean, a lot of the work that I do now with women, um, specifically in maternity leave planning and um, kind of what I like to call preventive postpartum support, <laughs> as opposed to postpartum support in moments of crisis, um, is, you know, some of the basic logistics in terms of meal trains being set up to keep yourself fed, of kind of rules and communication around who visits, when they visit, how long they visit for, and, and what are the mm-hmm. things they're going to do during that visit. <laughs> um, yeah. And and those things, I think, really helped me um, have, have boundaries in place that I had communicated um, to the people that would be coming into my life postpartum. Um, right. And it came down to just being really specific about the ways in which I would find um, 
helpful uh, for them to show their support um, because I think everyone wants to be helpful. It's just mm-hmm. the ways some people show that they care, show help, might not feel that helpful in that particular phase, you know, emotional phase of life, physical phase of life, sleep deprived phase of life. Yes. Um, yeah, those are all such huge factors. It's a big part of the work that I do with women too, is actually figuring out what you need? Like, what do you actually need? And then how can you actually get that? Because there are so many well-meaning people that we have proximally to us that, you know, want to show up and want to be there for us, want to provide support. But there's this really huge gap between us actually understanding what we need and then reaching out to the right sources for getting those needs met. And so there's a lot of miscommunication. There's a lot of Um, just disconnect that happens there that means that the support is just not it's just not there and and then that really further breaks down those communal structures that actually could be really healthy and really healing and beneficial they have the capacity to do it they just aren't being utilized in that way right yeah I think like you're saying the, the worst case scenario is if if, if people are quote unquote helping and mom ends up feeling like I might be better off without all these people trying to help yeah. and, and more alone. Right. Yeah. Um, totally. So what was your own postpartum transition like after, you know, all of this, you know, preparation, all of this hypothesize, hypotha, what's the word? Hypothesizing, <laughs> you know, all of this work that you have done with other women and these tools that you have for assessing these needs and, and being as prepared as possible. How did that translate to your own transition? Yeah. So I had, um, a, let's say my house was full for postpartum, um, like a pretty, pretty, uh, like, people around. Um, but I feel like even now reflecting back, it was really the right people. So I had, um, my mother-in-law who ended up, uh, staying with us for six weeks after my son was born, um, who, whose role, and this is, she's a woman who, who happily does this kind of thing, but it was really a mothering the mother type of role. Um, I, uh, she's older, so I didn't want her to feel like she had to like do everything that I normally would have done. So I had extra help with housework, um, and a friend, um, who coordinated a meal train and another friend who would just cook two days a week for like the first three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of, uh, food support, cleaning support, and I really, you know, focused on, um, on, well, walking. I, I, because of the tear, I spent a lot of time in bed the first two weeks. Um, and, um, I, for whatever reason, was one of those people who had a pretty easy time breastfeeding and it was just something that I, you know, spent most of my time doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so I really had, um, a, kind of lying in period that lasted for about those first two weeks. Um, my son, unfortunately, got a pretty serious bacterial oh. infection at two weeks. And so um, kind of the two-week postpartum to, to two-month postpartum was um, definitely a high-stress yeah. time um, because I was, you know, still really recovering myself and having to, like, be a 
responsible for another human for the first time. So I spend yeah. a lot of time crying. <laughs> I was either breastfeeding or crying. Um, breastfeeding, crying, or eating, um, I think is how I would describe my <laughs> postpartum experience. Um, my husband, who's also self-employed, was uh, was around pretty much 24-7. Um, and I had uh, my own mom um, come during that initial six weeks as well. Um, and, and then once my mother-in-law went home, um, I, I started, I finally, again, at the, at the encourage, the gentle encouragement of my midwife, I found a local mom's group, um, because up until that point I had, I had great professional help. I had family help, um, but I didn't have a network of local moms. Um, and so I, you know, I had some friends. That level, that communal level. I had friends who had, um, kids right around the same time frame, but friends who were, you know, spread out around, um, around the globe. And so that was a pretty clear pivot for me in my kind of postpartum resiliency and transition into motherhood is joining that in-person mom's group. Again, with, with moms who I might not have had much and I don't have much in common with outside of having a baby within the same two week time span. Um, but it was exactly what yeah. I needed. Um, yeah. and that group was from six weeks postpartum to, um, to when my son turned one, it was the group I met with every week without fail. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so important and so powerful and something that, that we always recommend to women as well. And I think that it can be really hard to get out the door when you have <laughs> a brand new baby. And, you know, I think some women, some women really try to, to get back to a state of quote unquote, and I'm, heavily air quoting right now, normalcy, um, you know, shortly after birth and, and resume social activities and, you know, get back to, um, maybe a fitness routine or whatever, whatever feels normal to them. But a lot of people feel really disconnected from how their life looked before. And even if they have great support in the home, that's kind of helping them transition and cope with these new realities. It can be really hard for people to say like, I'm going to package my baby up. Who's like really, really fussy today. And what if, you know, like this was supposed to be nap time, but, but I like, I I think I'll just stay home. You know Um, it's really hard to, to make that a priority when there's so much else going on. And I think that the benefits far outweigh what it costs to get, (laughs) to get that going, to make that happen. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another thing that you can do a little prep work for is just knowing whether or not there is mom's group or mom's groups local, local to you, um, or figuring out who's the person that organizes that type of thing. Like my, my midwife had a pretty direct referral for me. Um, and, and it it wasn't something that I had to like seek out or spend a lot of time learning about or create myself like that. I can imagine would have felt really daunting if I was like, oh god, I guess I better start a new mom's group now. Right, um, I have to invite I everyone over to some, my house and make peace. Yeah. <laughs> I had somewhere that I could just show up. Yeah, yeah, that is really really important. And so I think that there is no matter how amazing your mother-in-law is and no matter how great the meal train is, like you, new mothers need to be around other new mothers. You have to be able to normalize your experience. You And you have to be able to see the spectrum. You have to be able to see the women who are 
struggling so hard to breastfeed. And you also need to see the women who are not struggling to breastfeed. Like you need to see it all. You need to be able to, to insert yourself into that continuum, you know? Yeah. And, and so crucial to the process is that we are actively developing identities as mothers, right? So figuring out how to do that um, in a non-isolated way um, is is so helpful. I remember um, the first, I kind of think of my identity of my motherhood identity starting during pregnancy where I was like in my bathroom most hours of the day. And I was like, I do not like this new identity. <laughs> I like, this is not the person that I want to be. I, you know, felt so unproductive and, and just sad and tired and really mm. mourned the loss of the old me. And, and, um, and so I think being, able to think about it as a very gradual transition um, and identity development process um, was is is a helpful frame um, and having a group to help kind of be alongside you in that process um, and women who are going through the process and and everyone's developing their identities um, in slightly different ways but also on this similar timeline and trajectory um, was, was huge yeah there's so much commonality Mm-hmm. So from what you've described to me, it sounds like, you know, the, the knowledge and the experience that you had with maternal health, with these, you know, with this creating this space for a healthy, positive postpartum transition, how that translated to your own experience was really, really great. If we could use the term successful, I use that term very, very loosely. Um, But I wonder now that you've experienced an actual postpartum transition yourself and looking back at the tools that you that you used to prepare and the frameworks that you had that that were so helpful to you in that time. Is there anything that you see now having gone through it yourself that you feel like was missing in that preparation that you've maybe now incorporated into the work that you're doing with women? Um, Great question. I think I might have underscored a bit more what I, I I mentioned it earlier, but the the just inherent uncertainty and what mm-hmm. it is like to make decisions and not feel paralyzed by that uncertainty. I think especially mm-hmm. when my son was sick, I like I just wanted to make the right decision and I didn't know how to do that. Um, right. And so I, I felt paralyzed by this not knowing and this uncertainty. Um, and the stakes feel so high. Right. And, and so I think coping, um, tools that can help you cope with uncertainty across all domains of motherhood and parenting, um, because it is this constant theme, um, mm, is yep. so helpful. Um, and it's something that I had I worked on more in kind of a clinical mental health setting. Um, and I hadn't really translated that into my postpartum prep work. Um, and so, I mean, one way that like one really clear way that I've shifted, um, is, is that I now do a lot more like follow follow up, like through the whole postpartum year. Right. Um, yeah. I was going to ask I you that. work with folks. Yeah. Which, which really maps on to, to my own experience of having um, uh, a much longer period um, that I 
considered and framed as a transition period for myself, um, probably, probably longer than I would have imagined. I mean, I'm kind of just coming out of it, (laughs) to be honest. And my son's too. (laughs) Yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about and is being talked a lot about in in the birth community, in the mental health community around, you know, the perinatal period is that we are not even even those, you know, those more um, aggressive, recommendations around postpartum follow-up and care really still don't recognize how much women need support, you know, six months down the line, how much they need support still around a year. And in fact, a lot of the incidents or, you know, the increase in postpartum depression is happening around that six-month mark where women have sort of they've kind of like the support systems and structures have kind of faded. You know, we, we don't have, even if you had amazing support in the beginning, you had your mother-in-law staying with you, you had a meal train, you had all of these things, it kind of shifts. And then there's also these hormonal shifts that happen. And a lot of women are at that six month mark and they, they feel, they don't, they don't feel right. They don't feel well, but they don't, they also don't understand that this is still their postpartum transition and that they should be reaching out for help. They feel like, oh my gosh, this is just my life, you know? Yeah. Like a, why can't I get it together Right, <laughs> type of sensation when it really is um, part of the perinatal process. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said too, with the, you know, with the coping strategies for uncertainty, for dealing with these really, really hard things that come up. I mean, those are tools that you're never going to pack up and put away on the motherhood journey. There never comes a time where it's like, okay, well my, my teenagers, you know, on, (laughs) on autopilot, like that's not going to happen. It's just, (laughs) it just, it just isn't a reality. And so I think that the earlier we develop those tools, the more, the more equipped we are to, to handle every stage and, and every stage has really unique challenges that we've never, ever faced before. Yeah. So true. I feel like the lessons learned in uh, pregnancy, early postpartum really are like the the building blocks for everything to come. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with women. How, how do you, how do you specifically work with women? Is that something that anyone can access? Is that something that's location specific? How do you work? Sure. So my uh, private practice since 2013 has been virtual. Um, and as I mentioned, I transitioned from working exclusively in the postpartum period to really working with women during pregnancy around maternity leave and postpartum planning and specifically with self-employed women. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, subgroup that I think in most people's minds, we don't think of that group as a, as a vulnerable population, but when you look at the policy gaps in policy gaps in social protections, especially in the U S, um, that group falls through the cracks when it comes to things like maternity leave and, um, and levels and coverage in terms of insurance, um, and, and access to, to not just professional resources, but community resources, um, especially when, when women are working in, in online situations, um, more and more. Uh, so that is the primary focus of my, my private practice. Um, and I'm actually, 
at, at the urging of, of some good friends and mastermind uh, buddies and taking the, the methodology that I've used in my one-on-one work um, for some time and, and writing my first book. So it's, awesome. yeah, it's uh, in a annotated outline form right now and, um, mm-hmm. and will likely be out 2019. Um, okay. Yeah. And is that going to be similar themed uh, in regarding postpartum transitions, maternity leave, that kind of stuff, or is it something different? Yeah, it will, it will be all about, um, about navigating, uh, and designing maternity leave in a way that meets your business needs and, and personal, um, situation. Hmm. I love that. It's so needed. And, and I love how you pointed out that, you know, work, self-employed working mothers are maybe under-identified as a vulnerable population. I think that, you know, when you, when you look at someone on paper, it looks like a person that has, has control or flexibility, you know, and that they, by, by nature, the fact that they're self-employed are, are able to make other decisions that, you know, can create a structure in life that they want. And I think that that is sometimes really, the opposite is true. You know, I think that a lot of self-employed people feel like they, they don't have options. They don't have choices. It's, it's up to them to save the world. And if, if they can't keep that train moving, it's, it's going to run them over, you know? So I love that you're, I love that you're focusing your work there and really providing those resources for women. Yeah, it is fun and challenging work. (laughs) Yeah. So how can people find you? Yeah, so my home on the the internet is just my name, which is not particularly easy to spell. So you can refer to show notes, uh, arianatabuata.com. Yes, <laughs> and I'll be sure to, um, that's, the website is also where the, the downloadable version of the, the postpartum eco map lives. So okay, we'll great. include that. Um, and I hang out a lot on Instagram. So I love mother births posts and, and my own uh, account has a lot of both maternal health, um, research, advocacy, personal stuff. Uh, so it's, it's a nice little mix again of the personal and professional. (laughs) Great. Well, we will share links to all of those things as we're wrapping up. I would love for you to just thinking back on your own experiences and particularly thinking about, you know, your postpartum transition and, and everything you learned from your own experience, as well as the work that you've done with so many women over the years. Is there one thing that you would share with women who are either approaching a postpartum transition or perhaps in one now, anything that you feel like they can, you know, take as a, as a piece of encouragement on this journey? Sure. I mean, one of the things that I uh, like to reflect on is that I've never met anyone in my years of, of doing this work uh, who said they had too much support. So um planning for more support than you might need um, or figuring out the right kind of support that that would help best meet your needs um, is one of my biggest takeaways. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That is so true. I think I saw, maybe it was you, it might have been you that posted just that exact phrase, like no one ever said they had too much postpartum support and it is it is so very true. Well, thank you so much, Ariana, for sharing your your really inspiring story. I love to hear both the the aspect of you know an unconventional birth in a setting 
that is so different than many of the people that listen to the show. I think people will find that really interesting and inspiring, but also just the work that you do and how intentional you were about preparing for that postpartum period. And I think that intention is really the key. And what really shows in what you've shared with us today is that there's, you know, to be preventive, to be, to be proactive, to be thinking ahead, to be intentional about that time, no matter what your resources are, no matter what your plans are, no matter what your life systems and structures are, you can be intentional about what that's going to look like and really making it the very best that it can be. So I'm so, so thankful that you shared with us today. I think it was such a great mix of inspiration and, and practicality. So thank you. Yeah, the feeling is mutual. Thanks to you and and Laura, of course, for, for holding this space. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Laura and Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.